Acts 17, verse 1 through to 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Um, Now, we're going to continue our series sent this morning in the book of Acts, and uh, we're looking at Acts 17, verse 1 to 5, which Tony's already read for us. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get stuck into it, okay? What I was thinking is I want to pray for us that we would be like these noble uh, Berean Jews, and that as I preach, you would constantly just go like this. Not because you agree with me, but because you think, is that really what the passage is saying? Is that really? So let's pray for that, that we would be people like that, right? Father God, thank you so much for your wonderful word. Um, Yeah, and and we've heard from the Gideons already this morning uh, something that I think we're going to hear again from your word this morning, just the power of your word and and even hearing some of those testimonies. Uh, This is the same word that we're opening up now. And we pray that you would speak to us, Lord. And may we receive this with um, uh, joyous hearts, examining the scriptures as I speak this morning. And Lord, Help us as we reason, as we explain, as we prove things, that our minds would be engaged, uh, but above all, that people would hear from you and that you would do the great work that you have done for centuries as we look at your word. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, earlier in July this year, I went to watch a rugby union match. That is a sport. I know it's not really a thing in WA. Rugby union. So I went and watched a match with my father-in-law and brother-in-law uh, at Optus Stadium. And it's always a bit awkward when we play the Wallabies play against the old enemy, England, when your father-in-law is a passionate POM supporter. But so we went, and he bought the tickets as well, which was good. And, um, and we won the game, which was even better. Now, after the two teams sang the national anthems, which I don't often do uh, in AFL, except maybe at the grand final, fireworks went off like crazy, like all around the stadium. It felt like it was some sort of rock concert. And, and when it was finished, there was smoke everywhere. You could barely see the players in the field. And, and I remember hearing some grumbling around like, what the heck now? Like, how are we going to watch the game? And, and, and so you can imagine the scene. And the fireworks are obviously a mark to show this is, this is something important. This is a huge game. These are two international sides clashing with each other. It's not just some local footy club. Um, but eventually, once the, once the smoke cleared, uh, it was back to the grind of kind of everyday rugby, you know, running, tackling, passing, catching, and so on. Now, imagine, imagine if a local rugby coach was there. Maybe his son decided to play rugby, and he said, well, look, you know, we're a bit short of volunteers. I'll, I'll be one of the coaches for one of the teams. Uh, and on Monday, he storms into training, and he says, guys, I was at the game on the weekend, and I know how we can play great, great rugby now. So what we're going to do is we're going to get some fireworks. We're going to have smoke everywhere, and we're going to entertain people. Do you think if that coach would um, be able to help his players and grow them and, and, and have them play great rugby as a coach? Probably not, because the fireworks really has got nothing to do with the game, and it's got nothing to do with, with tactics and technique and skills and game plan. But you know what? Sadly, that's what some of our churches do today. They look at the beginning of the book of Acts, where uh, you very much have Jesus kind of doing these great, amazing things to show the magnitude of what was happening as he establishes his church and as the gospel crosses boundaries, cultural boundaries, religious boundaries, racial boundaries. They, they look at that time and, and of the outpouring of the Spirit in amazing ways of speaking in tongues and, and these signs and wonders that the apostles did and they say, hey, that's what everyone has to do. But much of these extraordinary and out-of-this-world wonders kind of fade out as you go through the book of Acts, towards the end of Acts, just like the, the fireworks smoke at the game eventually went away. And what we have left, and, and I think we're starting to hit this part of Acts, is the plain and everyday life of sent ones, trying to share the good news of Jesus and Jesus still powerfully working. Let's not miss that as he saves people. So today I want to show you uh, the word of God at work. And I think that's at the heart of why organizations like the Gideons exist. And in God's kindness, he's put us together today. This wasn't planned, if that is what you're thinking. Uh, and there, you know, if, if you think of the book of Acts, if there was ever a time... When, when Jesus needed to do the kind of fireworks Christianity that, that, that Acts started with, well, it would be right now. Paul and his team, they've been going through all of these little country towns, uh, sharing Jesus with people, and they've been pretty successful. And now they're starting to hit the big, impressive cities. You know where all the smart people live? 
people who are technologically, technologically advanced and uh, people who can see things very well. And so we've come to Philippi last week. That was a leading city in that region. Uh, today we're looking at Thessalonica. That was the capital city of the district of Macedonia. Athens, we'll look at next week, was the intellectual capital of the time. And so surely if Jesus is going to gain followers in, in these cities, he'll need to bring the fireworks, right? But to our surprise, it's the simple word of God at work. And it's still powerful and it does amazing things. And I want to show you three things. The word of God at work in reasoning, in rejection, and in reception. So let's start with the first one, in reasoning. Now it's crystal clear that at the heart of the everyday Christian life is opening the scriptures like we've done, switching our brains on, wrestling with the truth in the Bible, and seeing everything in it from start to finish uh, is about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Have a look with me at, uh, from verse 1. So when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And what does Paul do? Well, he goes in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Paul's custom was to reason from the Scriptures with the Jews. You know, that's the fat part of our Bibles, the Old Testament, which is what he would have been using. He was explaining passages to them. He was making statements and then proving it to them from the Scriptures, a bit like what I'm doing. Hey, here's something I think God is saying to us, and let's look at the Bible and show you where it comes from, and explain it and prove it. And we see in verse 4 that some of the Jews were persuaded through this kind of rigorous mental exercise. And so one of the first things I thought of as we think of applying this is, let's be a church that's not afraid to be intellectually challenged by the Bible. Let's be a people that don't leave our brains at home when we come to church on Sundays, but to actually bring them with us. Don't leave them at the door. Bring them with you. Let's be families that teach our kids in such a way that their minds are involved. And you know, it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible is, is, is intellectually so robust and the good news of the Bible is intellectually satisfying because the Bible is the Word of God. And God has the most highest and most soundest intellectual. He is the most highest and soundest intellect in the universe, isn't he? He's full of reason, he's logical, his thoughts make sense, and, and his words, and he himself is filled with infinite wisdom. So even if sometimes we come across something that doesn't make sense, the problem is not with us. I mean, not with the Word or with God. It's, it's generally our lack of understanding. And so we can come to the Bible if we know it's the Word of God, knowing that it's not made up of straw man arguments. And it should also, as we think about that and consider that, lead us to confidently share the Word of God with not-yet-Christians. You know, people often say, oh, well, Christianity, airy-fairy, uh, you know, you, you, it's just a kind of blind faith thing that you guys have. There's no real basis for it and no reason. But that's simply not true. Christianity is intellectually robust and it's intellectually satisfying for those who are happy to come to it and reason 
with the scriptures. So let's boldly seek people to open the Bible with. Like Tony was saying last week, just go to someone and say, hey, I want to read the Bible with someone. Would you be interested? Someone called me just this week saying they want to do that with a friend, which is really encouraging. Now, it's worth asking if the Word of God is at work in reasoning, well, what is all the reasoning and proving and explaining about? Well, it was to show that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to die, and to rise again. Now, remember, Paul is speaking at a Jewish synagogue, and so he knows what will be the Jews' objection to this Jesus that he's kind of trying to trump among the nations. And, and, and he knows that the Jews are waiting for the Christ. That is God's promised, long-awaited and chosen king who will rescue his people and rule over them forever. And so, of course, as, 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 as Paul shares about Jesus, they would want to know, well, how can the Christ suffer? And how can the Christ die if he's meant to be ruling forever, and especially at the hands of the Roman people who are meant to be the enemies. And so Paul first shows them from their own scriptures that God actually promised the suffering of the Christ. That Christ actually had to die and the Christ had to rise again. And then he's saying, okay, have you got that? Have I proven it to you? Now think about this guy, Jesus, that I'm proclaiming to you. He is that guy. It's very simple logic, actually. Paul is saying to them, hey, you know what? Um, the Christ, the guy that you're waiting for, he was someone who had to suffer. He had to die and rise again. Let me think, what other person on the planet has risen to life? Um, you know, there's only one of them, so that narrows it right down. <laughs> and so Jesus is this Christ you're waiting for, and he's the one I'm proclaiming to you. Now, when we share Jesus with Aussies, uh, they're going to have some different questions. But we definitely will need to be able to explain Jesus' suffering and his resurrection. And I think we can do it quite simply. We can say something like this. Hey, Jesus had to suffer because as the Son of God, he, he, he came down to also be the Son of Man. And he came to represent us. And so as part of that, he had to go through what we go through, yet without falling short like we have. And so he came to live a life of suffering because that's just simply what human beings experience to some degree or another. And, and, and so you can talk about the suffering in our world and how that shows us that somewhere there's a problem, isn't there? You can bring some logic in here. You can reason. Well, hey, if we are perfect people and if we perfectly treat each other and love each other and the world and everyone around us, uh, why is there suffering? If things were so perfect, surely there wouldn't be suffering. But there is suffering because there is a problem. And the Bible says that that problem is that we've rejected the God who made us and we're trying to do life our own way and we're making a big mess of it. We're doing whatever we please. That's why there's suffering in the world, to remind us we're not right with God. And also it's a warning of an even worse future if we don't turn back to God because God is so good and he's so fair that one day he will give to everyone who rejects him what they want. He will give them eternity without him, without his goodness, with endless suffering and death-like pain. But in God's love, he sent his son Jesus to come to represent humanity, you and me, and to be the perfect human being in his infinite capacity as God. 
And Jesus suffered through life. He suffered, especially in the lead up to his crucifixion, and even more so on the cross, he suffered. On the cross, he suffered the punishment that we who reject God deserve. And through faith in him, we receive the forgiveness that he has won for us, that it is as if we have paid the penalty for all of our wrongs, and all the credit of his perfect life has come our way too. And so that's why it says, do you get it now? That's why it says it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer in our place if we want to go and spend eternity with God without pain. So Jesus' death was a must. There there just simply was no other way. And God even rose him from the dead to show that his suffering in our place was sufficient and um, he, he, he is ruling and reigning now over all of those people that turn to him in faith. And he's going to continue to do that forever because he's defeated death. You see, that, that's my little go at explaining Jesus' suffering and resurrection. I think it was pretty simple. And it, was it okay to understand that you follow that along? And, and now the good thing is you don't actually have to write something down like this. Uh, or even know something off the top of your head necessarily. Even though we'll, we'll hear a bit of that next week. Um, but what, all you have to do is to open up God's word with people and just explain and reason and wrestle what's in front of you, just one verse at a time. And God is the one that will persuade people. Uh, we, we don't actually see this in our English translations, but in verse 4, when it says there, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, the, the persuading was done to them. It wasn't something that came out of them. Uh, by themselves. It's not an active verb, but a passive verb. And so it shows that God is the one that did the persuading as Paul opened up and reasoned with them through the scriptures. And you know what? We can do the same. We can do the same. God will persuade people as we reason with them through his word. So that's the first point. The second one, so the word of God is at work in reasoning, but also in rejection. Throughout the Bible, um, and and you see this in Jesus' life and in the early church in the book of Acts, uh, whenever God's word is shared, it it is also rejected. And this week in Thessalonica and in Berea, it's no different. And and it's not simply that these guys actually rejected the word. No, thank you. That's not for us. Um, They opposed it strongly. Uh, they were aggressively opposed to it. So, so much so that, they, that after scaring Paul and his team out of Thessalonica, they also chased after them to the next town in Berea when they heard that they were speaking of Jesus there. But God is still at work even when his word is rejected. And uh, firstly, God is at work uh, as the message of salvation is opposed and his messengers are persecuted in that God uses that persecution and rejection and opposition to open up new doors and new opportunities. We see this right at the beginning of Acts. Remember when that great persecution broke out against the church after Stephen's uh, persecution or his death, uh, and people were scattered all over the world, but it said that as they were scattered, they went and preached good news of Jesus to others. Uh, and, and there's this kind of repeated theme throughout the book is wherever these people scattered, there they preach the gospel, there the word multiplied, and there um, God saved people throughout the region. 
so as people shut the doors in the faces of God's messengers, he opens up new ones for them and more people uh, are reached. And this should be very encouraging. And certainly, I think one of the questions that Tony and I were wrestling with the other day in my office is it should make us ask, am I happy to suffer for the proclamation of God's word? Knowing it will be rejected at times. Knowing that maybe people will even shame me, say, say nasty things at me, uh, uh, and, and what else it might, that might even involve. Rejection. Beaten, stoned, it was just, uh, uh, I mean, Paul was just stoned a little while back. So, so one thing that is certain is that Paul and his team, they were happy to be rejected, shamed and, and beaten as they proclaimed Jesus. But, but what they weren't happy with is people not hearing about Jesus. So there's these two things. That is what drove them, people hearing of the love of God in the life-giving death of Jesus. They are happy to suffer for that because, as a result, uh, people will be told about Jesus. And they don't want them to miss out on that. And I wonder, are you also as bold as Paul and his team? I know I certainly am not. Sometimes I am, but not all the time. And I wish I could be like that all the time. And that's part of why we're doing a short little five-week series after this called Bold, and we're going to share five life-changing biblical truths that should make us bold to speak the gospel to others. Um, So make sure you don't miss that. So that's one thing that God does in people rejecting His Word. The first work of God through the rejection of His Word is to open up new opportunities for its spreading. But secondly, God uses the, the, the truth and the ugliness of those who oppose Jesus. Did you notice that? Have a look there from verse 5 with me. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down. Who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Did you see why the Jews dragged Jason before the authorities? We we see in verse 5 that it's because they're jealous. Uh, Is that what they say to the city authorities? Hey, hey, here's these people, and we're so jealous of them. Our church is smaller than theirs now. No, no, that's not what they're saying. What they say, essentially they're saying, hey, we're really good citizens. You know, we want to keep the peace. We love the Romans. And, but these guys don't. And so, all of a sudden, you see, when people oppose Jesus and his church, it's obvious what the true reasons are. And, you know, they might say something that everyone would like. Oh, yeah, no, I like what that is. But eventually people see the true motives of what is behind it. And you might think, oh, well, Donnie, you can see that because it says it there in the Bible. But think, of, think back of Jesus' crucifixion. Even when the chief priest brought Jesus to Pilate to be crucified, what it says there in Mark chapter 15, verse 10, it says that he perceived that it was out of envy that they did it. He could see what were the real motives behind everything. Envy. Jealousy and other ugly characteristics are exposed in those who oppose Jesus and his church. And it's very clear 
for those who have eyes to see. Now, what is also exposed are people's double standards. The Jews, did you notice who they took? They took wicked men from the rabble to do their dirty work. Now, now, I'm not an expert in Jewish law, but I think these wicked men are the people that they're not meant to be hanging out with. These are people that are not really even allowed in their inner sanctum, in their, in their religious gatherings. Um, these are people they frown upon. I mean, I think they, called, they used to call them dogs. Do you remember the story of the woman who chases after Jesus? And he's, he says, I've got to go out to the Jews uh, and I've got to feed them. And she said, but you know what, Master? The dogs even get the crumbs that fall from the table. It's because they were called dogs. And you know what? These are the people that the Jews go and, help, and got a hold of them to help them. Hey, none of those things matter, you know, when we're trying to oppose Jesus. And so you can see their hypocrisy, their double standards. And again, think back of Jesus' crucifixion. It's a bit like when Pilate, um, they bring Jesus to Pilate, and they, they're telling him about why they've got Jesus here. And he says, look, guys, you go and judge Jesus by your own law. And what, what do they say? They say this in John 18.31. They said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Jesus, hey, we're outstanding people. We don't put people to death. Crucify him, crucify him. It's like, what? They stirred up the crown to do everything to get this guy crucified. But hey, we're not allowed to put anyone to death. And yet they happily scream that. You see the hypocrisy and the double standards that, that come out as people oppose Jesus. And it's ugly. It is ugly. A few years ago, I was watching Q&A. I think it's gone down the drain a bit, to be honest. I'm not sure. I was watching Q&A on ABC, and they had a guy called Peter Jensen on there. He was the Archbishop of Sydney at the time. And he's this godly Christian man who speaks publicly about what he believes, what the Bible says, and is a real spokesman for Jesus. And that's why they often used to get him on, particularly when there's topics that they know Christians don't agree with. And um, uh, I can't remember exactly what they were talking about on the night, but I remember all the other people on the panel just getting stuck into him, ripping him to shreds. But he just kind of stuck to his guns. He kept saying what the Bible teaches. He stood by why he believed it. And he just did it with absolute integrity. And I don't know if you've watched Q&A, but down the bottom, as often with these modern things, there's people's tweets that come up that's hashtag Q&A and whatnot. And I just remember this clear one where there's this tweet that came up from someone at the bottom of the screen, and it said something like this. I am an atheist, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I like the Christian guy the most. You see, the way that those who opposed Jesus were acting uh, and arguing against Peter Jensen and and against Jesus ultimately exposed the incoherency of their thoughts and the ugliness of their hearts. And it was off-putting. Now, did that atheist become a Christian? Probably not. Who knows? Maybe they picked up a Gideon Bible after that in their hotel. But at least they were drawn to this Christian man. They were probably happy to now sit down and have a coffee with him and read the Bible. And so in the ugliness of the opposition's rejection of the word of God, God's work is to show the beauty of Jesus and his church. And so more doors are open as people are seeing Christians in new ways. At, and, and, and at least they might be willing to sit down and listen to them. So if, if you've been rejected, 
as you try and share Jesus, don't worry. God is at work. And this is how Paul puts in Philippians 1, 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. So there's the opponents that's opposing them. Uh, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You see, God works in those who reject the message of Jesus to expose their upcoming destruction, as well as in those who are rejected, to be reminded of the beauty of their salvation and their God. Okay, so that's point two. The word of God at work in rejection, and the first one was um, in reason, and now thirdly, we're going to look at this. The word of God at work in reception. I thought we'd finish on a positive note, right? Now, it's clear that in these two cities that we looked at, Thessalonica, Berea, two responses to the message of Jesus, rejection and reception. Both, but, but in both cases, the same gospel proclamation was heard by everyone at the same time. The same explaining, the same proving, the same reasoning as we saw under point one. And so the question is, well, why did some receive the message and others not? Well, have a look with me from verse 11. So this is talking about those in Berea. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily uh, to... Oh, where am I? Sorry. Daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now, it seems from from these verses that it was because of how these people received the word that that they were saved, examining the scriptures to see if what Paul actually said is what the scriptures says. And, And especially from verse 12, it's clear that many believed, as it says there, because of their studying and understanding of the scriptures. And, and if we're not careful in how we just take that one verse and its truth, uh, it can lead us to believe that we can save people. If I just give a really clear presentation, and man, if I can be smart and have arguments that beats the opposition or people I'm trying to share Jesus with, well, well then that'll be enough and that'll change people's minds and, and I'll persuade them. Now, that's dangerous because... If people reject the message, we're going to be crushed and we're going to feel like we've failed. But on the flip side, if people accept it, we're going to think, well, of course, it was my amazing reasoning. That was a ripper sermon. Anyone should become Christian because of that. And so we'll be filled with pride. And ultimately, in both cases, I think, we'll walk away from trusting God in our gospel proclamation. And so, the the truth is that even though reason plays a key part as we open up the Bible with people, like our faith does not bypass our minds, it it is important to remember that it's ultimately God's work. We saw that in point one when I told you that God is the one that does the persuading, even though we can't quite see that in our translations in verse four. But have a look here. So, 1 Thessalonians, we can see it here. So this is uh, the letter that Paul obviously wrote to the the church in Thessalonica. And he said this in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, what is it? That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So the Word of God is at work when people sit under the preaching and teaching of humans 
But people don't hear humans, they hear God himself. You know, people might open, uh, might off, open their Bibles at first to hear about Jesus. I can imagine someone uh, opening up one of those Gideon Bibles to hear about Jesus uh, at first. But then God starts working and they start hearing from Jesus himself. That's the work that God does. And if you're here today and you feel like you hear from God himself, when you open up your Bible, well, be encouraged. Or when you listen to talks that I'm giving now and you go, man, I can hear God. Be encouraged. God is at work. But God not only speaks when people receive his word, uh, so that's one of the things he does, uh, he also saves uh, have a look here at First Thessalonians again, but this time we're looking at chapter 1, verse 4 to 5. Uh, Paul says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You see, as people receive the gospel as it comes to them through reason proclamation, God presses upon their hearts that he loves them. And that he's chosen them as one of his very own children. And again, this happens not as, uh, you know, like as not only as people receive the gospel as from human beings, but as it says there, as from God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're here today and you wonder, man, has this happened to me? I've I've recently started reading the Bible and I wonder if this has happened to me. God has, has God worked through his word to save me and to show me his love. How do I know? Well, this is how you would know. If you've been convicted of your need of Jesus, that's a good start. If you've been convicted that in Jesus, God has shown his ultimate love to the world, that's good. And if you've been convicted that only through trust in Jesus can you become a child of God, not by your own works or anything that you bring to the table, that's good. If you've been having those convictions and acting on them by going to Jesus, well, I'd say you're saved by God. And if this has happened to you today, maybe it's happening right now or it's happened recently, would you please come and tell us? And we'd love to celebrate with you. Another way you know God has saved you through the work of his word is that he's powerfully at work in you. Did you see that? But also in power. Powerfully at work in you. So the gospel comes to you not only in word, but in power. In other words, it starts changing you. It starts changing you. And it might only be small things at the beginning, like you're becoming more thankful on a beautiful sunny day like this and thanking God for it. Or maybe you're becoming more gentle, becoming more patient, becoming more caring, becoming more unselfish. Uh, starting to lose your desire for ungodly things, being able to control your tongue. That's a big, big show of (laughs) the sign of God's work. Gaining a desire maybe to serve others. Uh, Gaining a desire to sacrifice for the good of others. You see, those are all things that God changes in us as he saves us. Uh, Have a look here at 2 Corinthians. Sorry, I'm jumping through quite a few passages Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 to 2. Now, now this is Paul describing the change of the Christians in the district of Macedonia, where Thessalonica and Berea uh, were. Okay? And this is what he says. He writes to the Corinthians, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. See, these Christians would change so much uh, that, uh, that they could have abundant joy in a time of severe affliction. That's not normal. That's just what happens with people that have been changed by God. They could be in extreme poverty, so it looks like they're going through a really tough time, but they're overflowing in a wealth of generosity. They could show the grace of God because they had been changed by the grace of God. So there you go. The word of God at work in reasoning, in rejection, and in reception. So let me finish like this. Now, church, I think the, the, the fireworks, the smoke of the fireworks from this amazing establishment of the church of Jesus Christ is gone. I think it's fair to say that. This is, I don't see any smoke. It's a pretty ordinary place. But despite the, you know, and it's happened despite this tremendous opposition and persecution over centuries, despite that, the good news of Jesus kept going out to the ends of the earth, even to Perth. And now we're in the day-to-day grind of every Christian, uh, of everyday Christian life. And it seems less flashy, but God is still powerfully at work through his word. And so let's get into the word. Like the noble Jews of Berea, eagerly receiving it, examining the scriptures daily, taking joy in it. And let's, let's get the word out like Paul and his team, no matter the cost. Look, look what um, Jesus says to Paul, if you need a little bit more motivation. Jesus says this to Paul in Acts 18, which we're not going to look at. He says this, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Listen to this bit, For I have many in this city who are my people. There are people in the twin cities of Gosnells and Armadale who are part of Jesus' church. They just don't know it yet. And we have to unearth them by sharing the good news of Jesus with people. They need to hear his voice through us. And so they can know of his suffering in their place, of his tremendous love for them, and the new place that they've got in God's family, that, he might, that we might bring them to God as their heavenly Father. And also that they might receive power to change radically in a way that transcends our minds. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And and I do pray as we look at the work that you do through your word, that you would give us a real love for your word, that we would treasure it above all, that it would be sweeter to our lips than honey, that it would be um, of greater treasure to us than money and wealth and silver and gold and anything else. Help us to value your word for what it really is, that we would use it as a lamp onto our feet and that we would use it as you intend for us. What a gracious gift the word is, as we hear again from the Gideons. They see that, and that's why they want to get it in people's hands. Thank you for your word. Give us a new appreciation for it. And may it change us, Lord. It's so beautiful, those lines where where these people are opposing Jesus' messengers, and they're saying, These people who have turned the world upside down has come here too. There is a sense that your world radically, your word changes people so radically that it looks like their worlds have been turned upside down. 
It's so, so stark and so contrasting and it's so beautiful. It's so life-giving. Would you work in us, Lord, as we receive your word to change us that we might look completely different to what we used to, as that man in that testimony shared. Um, Yeah, please be at work in us. And Lord, help us to be strong, to standing in the face of rejection and opposition. And would you work even in those times to expose the ugliness of people's hearts, uh, the incoherency of their thoughts and their reasoning, and above all, the beauty of the Lord Jesus and his church. Lord, we pray these things in his mighty name and for his glory and for our good as your sent ones as we look to boldly proclaim you to these twin cities of Gosnells and Armadale. Be with us and be gracious to us. Amen.